You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right, we're recording. All right, so Colin, I just checked. We last chatted almost exactly six months ago. Oh, nice. It doesn't seem how Dude, <clears throat> that long flies. ago. I know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I checked, I was curious. When we talked, Bitcoin price had just basically crashed from 60,000 to 30,000, like 50%. And I, I didn't really listen to our conversation, but I don't think either one of us had any like, thought that we were like entering a long-term bear market yeah um actually since then i don't know about you but i haven't sold anything and i've accumulated a lot more throughout the whole process yeah i was i was buying i wasn't planning on buying any more this year just because i figured we were in a bull run I, you know i'd already i'd been all in for 2017 2018 i just frankly didn't have much dry power to even yeah but once it went back down to thirty thousand, like, i'm right, whatever i have left just go ahead and put it in there maybe kind of reckless but i was i i didn't you know it was if you go around on the web it was pretty a lot of people thought we were like entering one of those like a long-term bear market like going from 30 to 20 for the next three years or something like that but no i didn't really even consider that uh and so you know i guess luckily or not luckily we are out of that and look to be heading in the right direction so anyways i had a couple of those things to chat about yep we're gonna chat about mostly about bitcoin but I, I want to hear what's going on with your in your life because I know like you've mm. been doing all kinds of stuff. I know the special mm. project that I definitely want to talk about, but like you're in Austin, what's happening? Oh, well, yeah, a lot of things. I'm in this weird lull with uh, not just knowing what I'm supposed to do with my company. Like I brought a partner on a year ago, and it's like kind of been a shit show. And yep. so I'm just like very uh, not trying to commit to anything too much, but at the same time, I've committed to things I know I want to do. I just it's kind of like a timeline. You know, you know, people like us, like we decide we're gonna do something, we do it. It usually is just a matter of like how much should we invest now or how much should we like let time kind of do its thing for a little bit, you know? Yeah. And there's always so many options and so many things to do. And like as I get older and older, having two kids, and it's just like your time, it dude, it flies. It flies yeah. so fast and it's the most valuable thing. And when you get a little bit of money and security, like, okay, now what do I focus on? Well, you focus on the thing that you can't actually more which is time time becomes the most important thing for everybody and it really is that most important thing for us all and so it's like it's uh it's a good like to hit these kind of lulls and have some space to think i think is very good but at the same time it creates new problems because like for me existential problems like should i be doing more should i be doing less should i just be okay with like what i have and not fall into the trap of having to like hustle for the next x amount or the next new company or thing or whatever and so i'm just doing i'm just trying to really kind of follow the dow of less is more action through an action you know and yeah. just letting time do its thing and so does that answer that i mean i, I can go yeah, into some specific I mean, things that's something like i personally think about a lot as far as how much to I don't like to use the word force things, but like step on the gas pedal, really try and control your reality Yep. versus like knowing what you, at least having like a vague idea of what you want and kind of like taking action, but not like trying to force it, so to speak. And I feel like, especially like a lot of entrepreneurs that tend to be like not very patient people because they, they just, they see a vision, yep. they want to make it happen. They tend to step on the gas pedal. And sometimes I think like what you're doing is really like, it's more what I try and do now is like, release the grip a little bit, 
let things kind of happen, keep doing your thing. Um, and, but, you know, like you said, like let time do its thing. And one of the things I recently, you know, I read something, I think it was Anthony Pompliano was talking about billionaires or whatnot, but it's like, if he, like, if he asked the question, like, would you trade places with Warren Buffett right now? Yep. Right. And there's not a chance in hell. Right. Right. No, you could have billions and billions of dollars, but I'm not trading to be 90 years old. Like that is yeah. a trade. Definitely. Would well, not he's be. time poor. He's exactly. cash rich time poor. Exactly. Right. And, and so, so he's like a, yeah, you and I, we're probably time. We're like second billionaires. I don't even know if we have that many. Maybe we're less time, than that. But yeah, I think when time, you're like the time billionaires, right? Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the, the increment. I mean, most of us, I don't think we have a billion minutes left. Like I yeah, actually think I that's a ridiculous look, yeah. amount, but it's probably like millions of minutes and we might have a billion seconds if we're lucky, like in our early twenties or thirties, but it's like, yeah, the two most important things. I mean, for the average human in a modern world, money matters. It is some, I mean, it's how you eat. It's how you do everything, right? You need yeah. money. Okay. It's a resource, right? It's very important that you have money. But the other thing that I think actually matters more because it's really how you live in the moment and how you think about the future of the past and how you think about money and values and all these things is time. Time is that thing. And most of it is like, oh, ignore time, focus on money and then get money. And then you like, hopefully that money can help you buy how to think about time or use time. But then it actually doesn't because you're so focused on making money that your brain is like warped and you don't actually know how to use time. And so like Tim Ferriss talked about this, he called it the void or the gap or something like he automated away most of his time and his business. And then he's like, what do I do with my life? And he had to like actually figure that out. And he like traveled around and that got old or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I'm getting older, 36, like still young, but as a thinker, as someone who's self-aware and as somebody that's gone through that entrepreneurial journey of like, you know how, like the school of hard knocks, you know, you really learn. And I feel like it accelerates life lessons that most people, it might take them their whole lives to figure out. And it really compresses that like two years of really hard entrepreneurship where everything's on the line. Like, and you go through this and lawsuits and that, and people stealing from you and employees, like you can pretty much learn like 20 years of life in, in, in two years. Right. And so I actually think it's probably the best, uh, way to learn for any human is, is that, but I don't also think most people should be entrepreneurs. So I've kind of changed my mind on that, but yeah, I, I thought about that question a lot and there's a lot of highs and lows that come with striking out on your own. And a lot of days on those low days, I'm like, man, this is not for everyone. No. Meaning like, cause like a lot of times it's like, man, I never like re question like quitting or anything like that. But a lot of times it's so not fun. You're like, I don't know if I'd recommend this to someone. And then on the high days, you're like, hey, everyone should be an entrepreneur. It's great. You know, all this yep. you get to do, it. but there's, there's the, the yin and the yang, like the highs and the lows and such, but okay. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Cause you got a new project going on. Let's chat about that. Yep. Okay. So which one? Uh, cause there's a couple, which one, do you have any notes on the specific one? You were talking about, I saw, I just read from reading your newsletter, basically, because yep. I haven't talked to you since then. A project where, and I, I mean, one of the reasons I want to talk about it is because all the details weren't clear to me. Mm -hmm. So as far as your goal is to refurbish stuff, get low cost things in the hands of people so that they can basically get Bitcoin more or less. But help me fill in the details. Yeah, so that that's kind of like an early iteration. There's a lot of um, I still have a lot of ideas to to kind of test and figure out. 
Oh, where to start? Uh, so I have the Bitcoin Impact Fund, right? So that's mm. what I've started either way. And I've seeded it with some of my own money. And I take any subscriptions that I get through the newsletter and anything. And 50% of that goes right into that. My idea with that is to try to show uh, nonprofits, NGOs, you know, places that receive dollars, probably keep it in their bank account. And then it just wastes away to inflation, as we know, like a melting ice cube. I want to show them that Bitcoin is actually the, the perfect reserve asset for uh nonprofit work because you get the value and then it grows, right? It's right. like literally an ever never ending growth. And it's just amazing. Right. So I, I want to be able to show that. And I need to get some, I need to do some kind of in real world projects to kind of show that and like track it. I need data and everything. And like a couple ideas that are sprouting out of that is like getting people set up on lightning walls in other parts of the world. You know, that's like a huge undertaking. And there's all there's already companies doing that and people doing that. Like a lot of people are going down to El Salvador and like lightning's blowing up there. And that will, I think one country after another will, will catch on and that will, that will happen. So I'm probably going to focus more on what I can control here in the States, like our sovereign humans project. And maybe I'm starting a new company with some like e-commerce. And then I'm going to do like a 50, 50 model where 50% of all profit goes into the Bitcoin impact fund. And, but, but again, because I'm in this like gray area with my current company, like I'm, I'm kind of like putting these things on the back burner, but I want to do something that combines, uh, free markets and for good doing, doing good, doing well. Right. Which, which a lot of people are very keen on. And you see a lot of, every time somebody gets a bunch of money, the billionaires and, uh, they're su- successful big tech dudes. They want to then figure out how they can do good in the world with all that capital. But it's like not that obvious or easy. Like you can't just like mm-hmm. give money to, to places, right? Because mo- most people don't understand is like, you saw, maybe saw a tweet recently where the UN or something claimed that Elon could basically end world hunger yeah. if he just like for 7 billion or whatever. And he's like, okay, cool. Well, give me a financial model. Let's track every dollar. And then I will do that. I'll literally sell my stock right now. Yeah. Most people don't understand that People starve mostly through corruption and through a lack of free markets. They don't starve because there's not enough food. They starve because there's not governance and personal property rights. Literally, that's all it is. Uh, And so there's like so much there, right? But as a proponent of better humans and free humans and free markets, whatever, I want to start connecting the free market with, with, you know, everyday purchases and show also NGOs through a Bitcoin model and have it all tied together and just like really do good, do well, and also get products you need and you're going to use or whatever. Cause like, you know, capitalism isn't going anywhere. Free markets aren't going anywhere. People need stuff. They're going to buy stuff. And if you can give them a reason to buy your product over somebody else's and it can actually do good and it's, tr- it's traceable, trackable, whatever. I just think we can really revolutionize all of it because I believe the free market is actually the freest expression for humanity. But a lot of people don't have that same sentiment. A lot of people believe the free market is evil or capitalism is evil or billionaires are evil. They don't understand how any of it works, but at least we can kind of start shifting the narrative a little bit. And like, obviously through this amazing thing of the internet and blockchain and everything, we can literally track everything down to the T. So a company might say they give 1%, but are they opening up their books and showing you where every dollar goes? And an NGO might taking in money and saying it goes here, but are they showing you exactly where it went? Like from an accounting perspective and like, so- there's a lot of big ideas that for me is probably a little bit on the back burner and going to be much slower yep. uh, because for various reasons, but there's also the new project we're working on the sovereign humans project, which we're basically going to build an off grid, decentralized, fully sustainable community outside of Austin, Texas, probably one to two hours. And the goal is to, I got some really cool ideas with that. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time there. And then hopefully from that, it can give me kind of resources and, uh, in, in people and, and things to do other things and expand it. But really that idea is more like 
open sourcing that project, kind of like what Elon did with his uh, EV batteries. He's like, I want everybody to take this technology because I want every car to go EV. And so he outsourced that battery technology, which is potentially worth billions of dollars if he had patents on it. We're going to do that with this. With this, We want to build a small town, community, whatever, and we want to make it a profitable business. And then we want to say, here, capital allocators around the world, build these because this is how you do it and this is how you make it profitable. So that's interesting. probably the grand project for my life. Uh, and so I'm hoping within like a year or two, we can actually have raised funds, break ground. I, actually, no, within a year, like literally six months is my goal when we really start fundraising for this. Because I mean, everybody I talk to is like, I want to I want to be a part of it. I want to live there. I want to buy property there. I want to stay there or like whatever. So uh, we're very on trend with all the craziness in the world right now. Which there's a lot of that. So let's talk a little about the craziness in the world. Um, but before we do that, let's, um, two questions came to mind there. Um, one is, I'll just ask them both and we can we can touch them in, in, in whatever order you want. One is, how do you feel about any alt coins besides Bitcoin? And then secondarily, um, I'm very curious about who and how you continue to learn about Bitcoin. Are you reading books? Are you doing podcasts? Are you doing all the above? Uh, who's your go-to sources, et cetera? Because uh, yep. I, th- I feel like this would be an interesting thing for you know other people because there's certain people that I know I I listen to on a regular basis, You know, kind of filtered through, listen to a lot of people. And then there's a few people that I've, when I see something, I'm, I'm reading it, I'm listening to it, whatever. Um, as f- and I also got, you know, I don't know what my opinion is on alts. So you're talking a little bit more about blockchain technology in general, a little bit. And so some people are saying these are uh, use cases for different altcoins, whereas there's other people who say um, basically Bitcoin only. So where, where are you at on that? Yeah. So I'll answer the second question first. Yeah. For me, Michael Saylor is kind of my go-to source, uh, though I pretty much know what he's going to say before he's going to say it because I've listened to <laughs> so many interviews, enough, yeah. right? But it's like good to reinforce that. Uh, any of the, you know, any good Bitcoin books that come out, I read them. There's been a few that come out lately. Uh, there's been a few that are on money. Uh, Robert Breedlove, when it comes to money and economics, I listen to him a lot. And I, you know, I'm to the point where I have my own understanding of things. Yeah. And most of when I'm, what I'm, absorbing content wise or information wise is just try to like fill in the gaps or to become better, a better thinker about it to myself, a better speaker about it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it, you got to be careful with that because that can become an echo chamber. That said, and again, it's like, that's a few people. So like a few, probably you could call them Bitcoin maximalists, you know, that I follow and listen to, uh, but I didn't even consider myself one of them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's fine. I think everyone, what everyone needs to be very uh, careful of, which answers the second question, is they need to be careful of the people that are skirting the line between two. Now, the, now the word blockchain, I actually kind of cringe when I say it because it is a marketing term, and but I do sometimes say it because like that's what people understand, so it's kind of that yeah. thing, you know. It was it's actually more so a time chain, and then you know all coins and the ICO craze co-opted the blockchain word, and then everything was a blockchain. The reality is a blockchain is just a ledger; it's a shared ledger that's distributed across multiple areas. And it's very inefficient to do most things. That's what most people don't understand. Extremely inefficient. Extremely inefficient. That's why they use centralized ledgers. Yep. Yes, exactly. That and that's why like somebody like Visa, which has a centralized layer two network on top of like the fiat dollar, can do like 80 or I think it's like 230,000 transactions a second. And that took them years to build that. Right. But that's why you just use a credit card for the speed and convenience of it. Okay. Uh so blockchain, all coins. Okay. So all coins. I am of the believer belief that everything that is not Bitcoin 
is not sound money is not i mean it's not even a cryptocurrency like i guess it is and it isn't but what i mean by that is everything that is an altcoin can be controlled by other humans bitcoin is the only thing that cannot okay so and i guess we should clarify why that matters because that's how you kind of get to the first principles of understanding of this right the reason that gold was money throughout history was because it was very very hard to control and people could mine it and you couldn't you didn't really have like a way to control all the gold on the planet and you couldn't really build a gate gatekeeper because it was spread out and you can get it from other areas and etc so it served as the best form of money because it was very hard to counterfeit it was very hard uh to control but if you look at today most of the central banks around the world control all the gold and gold has basically lost its use as money because of that now it's also lost its use of gold because bitcoin is demonetizing and bitcoin is you know a thousand times better than gold but the reason money is money or sound money's money is because you remove the human element when the human element gets involved it corrupts it controls and some humans do things that benefit themselves at the expense of other humans this is just all it is this is also why politics is a joke right it's all based on coercion all government is it's all based on coercion some people benefit at the expense of others based on coercion right so bitcoin is the only thing that you can't no single person group country or even group group of humans can control it's the only one every single other one is privy to uh manipulation control like some it's sometimes it's actively sometimes it's just based on like whether i can put out a tweet and like then all the developers say oh well we agree with vitalik so we'll do this like so there's all these subtle ways but basically it still has human mingling bitcoin does not at this point right it is truly decentralized it's the only decentralized it's really the only decentralized asset slash money slash thing that humanity's really ever seen other than maybe the internet the internet's probably the first thing or maybe you could even say language like the english language or even like bible those are actually good examples these are decentralized pieces of information or tools or psycho architectures for example that no one human could ever like stop i mean Control. like yeah you know like it's basically it's say i'm going to outlaw english it's like okay cool but like every time there's not a government official around people are just going to use english if they want to it's just kind of ridiculous it's even like the war on drugs they did that the government could actually control that is a joke right so we just kind of accept it as this weird thing so that's yeah. kind of like the, the foundational understanding of altcoin versus bitcoin now we can talk about the question do all coins have value and then that could be a separate discussion yep so I guess the one of the best ways to get at it is do you invest in any altcoins? Yes, the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes, the answer is no. Yes. Uh, That's okay. the right question, but the answer is no. Uh, I sold. I, I was like, your opinion can be what it is. And then sure. you ask someone, it's like, well, like people are like, oh, yeah, I, I believe in Ethereum or whatever, whatever altcoin. It's like, how much do you own? Okay, they put skin in the game. Maybe they do. We'll leave it a little bit, but right. Okay. So no skin in the game with altcoins, you know. I had bought some Ethereum a number of years ago. And at the time, I, I approached it kind of just like as a kind of like a venture angel speculative yep. investment. I haven't sold any. Um, but as I, you know, I think I, I probably will. <laughs> well, here's <laughs> what, yeah, what I'm so, getting at. Yeah, as here's I, the thing I sent $100 and die from a uh, Celsius account because that's what they gave uh my my mom a loan in so we did a bitcoin back back loan we had hundred dollars in die we were sending it as a test transaction to make sure the wallet was correct you usually want to send a small amount before saying like thirty thousand dollars whatever and the Celsius thing said you have saved eighty seven dollars in gas fees by choosing Celsius on this transaction that means that because die is built on uh, Ethereum 
it would have cost $86 in gas fees to send $100 in value. And that's just like one example of how kind of ridiculous it is. The, 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 the core thesis that breaks down all this is you don't need to have all this fancy crap on the, on the base layer, right? So the base layer blockchain, right. like for example, Bitcoin should do one thing only. And that is just make sure that nobody can corrupt it and no human can control it or, or manage it or whatever. And you have proof of work and you have decentralization, you have nodes, you have all these things that ensure that you know for sure that it's incorruptible, it's immutable, never going to change, et cetera. Right. There's a great book on this called Black Wars for people that want to check that out. Yeah, um, I need to read that. It's on my reading list. It's yep. yeah. I mean, there's there's the Black Wars because if people don't know, back in 2017, uh, this was the fight basically yep. between do we should we basically fork Bitcoin and have these larger blocks so that we can increase the rate of transactions or keep the blocks smaller, which seems like it was a scaling issue, which it is depending on how you look at it, a scaling mm -hmm. issue, but which can be overcome, which, you know, there's lightning networks and such, but yeah, yep. sorry to interrupt there, but I was just going, that's a great book for people that want to know more about like this base layer, like, and yep. how important it is like that it is small so it can be decentralized, uh, et cetera. So, so yeah. Uh, so I, I cut you off there. So I, I lost track where we were. Uh, yeah, well, um, the the base layer point, which is again, it's the Visa analogy. Like Visa yeah. is is built on top of the dollar, and it works very effectively at what it does, and, and millions and millions of people use it and trust it for that reason, right? Lightning Network is going to basically be Visa built on Bitcoin, and already it's like growing at leaps and bounds to do all these things. The the big real kind of early block size war issue and a lot of the FUD that people still have of like, oh, you're never going to be able to buy your cup of coffee with Bitcoin. You don't buy your cup of coffee with Bitcoin. You don't have to. You can if you want to, but you use something like Lightning Layer, which is basically free, and you do it that way. And that's going to keep growing and building whatever. But even then, you can use Bitcoin as your long-term savings account, like where you hold your value, and you can use your checking account that can kind of interact with that Bitcoin, keep a thousand bucks there for daily purchases, right? And that could be a dollar. That could be literally anything. It doesn't even matter what it is. It could just be like something built into Apple Pay. It could be tokens, EverQuest, like gold and EverQuest or, or some game or whatever. The most important thing is that it settles up with the base layer, right? And the analogy I use is like, you don't use your home or your stocks to make everyday trans transactions, right? Yep. You don't like right. sell a piece of your home every day because you need to buy a cup of coffee, yep. okay? It's just a misunderstanding of what, you know, Bitcoin really became through the market because Satoshi wanted to be, you know, like everyday transactions mate, or maybe he thought that or whatever, maybe he didn't even really realize what it was going to become, but the free market decided that it was best served for humanity. If it became digital gold and digital gold, just like gold that you could maybe have, or some silver that I still own some silver. I don't pull that out of my pocket and go to Starbucks to buy a cup of coffee. Right? right. But if I need to like sell into fiat and have some spending money or whatever, then I'll sell some of that gold. I'll basically convert it just like you'd convert Bitcoin into something if you had to or whatever, right? So yeah. it's just like that. Bitcoin is the strongest asset that humanity has ever found, created, right? Discovered, yeah. if you will. And it's going to serve uh, all these purposes that money like gold did historically, but has now failed to because the government co-opted it and controlled it and whatever. And because it's very heavy, hard to move, hard, like it gets rehypothecated, things like that. And so Bitcoin solves all these problems and it does it a thousand times better. And everything else that's fancy and bells and whistles can be built on top. And then it settles with the base layer. And the base layer, all it has to do is one thing, make sure it's true and nobody can manipulate it. Everything else that is not Bitcoin for this reason, 
can be manipulated and is therefore not actually the future uh, reserve currency planet. It's not future money, whatever. The question is then, well, do they have use cases? Can they have value in some other ways? And I don't know, because like if you actually look at how a lot of these networks like Polygon, Polygon Now and Solana, it's like kind of a race to the bottom. It's commoditized, it's a commoditized product because they're trying to compete on gas fees. And so people are going to start going to do these things and building on top of things that might be similar to Ethereum, but a little bit different, but the gas fees are way less. So what it does is it has a pull to the bottom so, the, so that the uh, the market eventually reduces the cost of things and then that wins more. And so if it has a higher cost, it will eventually lose out. So, I mean, I don't know, like Ethereum at this point is almost unusable for a lot of things. Yep. So I just feel like that's not really a place I'd want to be in investing. And again, it would be more of an investment, whereas Bitcoin is more of a, wealth preservation slash like it'll probably return the most of anything you've ever bought but that's only because we're so early in it right and that's how i think about that yep and i mean i think one of the main reasons that i will probably end up selling my ethereum and i don't buy any other altcoins is when i research the area it seems like a lot of these cool projects that are being built can and will be built on top bitcoin. of bitcoin yes they will and then to me if that time Bitcoin has already won the base layer, yep. why would we go anywhere else? Like we're gonna transact on top of the base layer, like you said, so through things like Lightning Network. And I do think like you use the analogy Bitcoin as like as gold, store of value. And I think we will probably be in that for maybe the rest of this decade where it's more of a high volatility, store of value, not a medium of exchange. But if it does, like, you know, I believe and probably you believe, but it's still kind of a radical idea that Bitcoin does kind of make its way across the planet, becomes like the reserve currency of humanity. Then with these layer twos like lightning, um, it'll also be a medium exchange and the volatility yep. at that point will finally, I think we're going to see a lot of volatility in Bitcoin for the next decade. Yep. Um, some people think like we're hitting some inflection point where it's going to stabilize. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're going to have a lot of volatility, which is a lot of opportunity as well. If people will look at volatility yep. that way, but I do think it'll be a medium exchange someday, but I think we're a ways off. And so the way to think about it is just as you said, at least I think is think of it as a savings vehicle. Um, you can think of it as a, like a, if someone's an investor, it's a great investor vehicle as well. You know, you have the volatility, you can't find yield anywhere today. So you yep. like, this is one place that, you know, it'll attract money from traders, which I think is probably good in, in these early days still. Um, but yeah, so should we talk about price a little bit? Um, because I know Sailor has interesting point of views and I, I, I like, I like watching price for a few reasons. One for the obvious reasons, kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about these cycles, investment opportunities, um, but also with Bitcoin cap supply, price really just reflects demand and demand really just reflects adoption. So price is basically a signal of Bitcoin success, more or less <laughs> as price yeah. goes up. And now we are like, it depends on what you denominate it in as well. Right. If the Bitcoin's price is going up because USD is going down, you know, that's one thing. Uh, but you know, I, I think price is interesting. And so sailor, he's kind of not a big believer of these four-year cycles and thinks there's probably going to wane out. I think we're probably going to have at least, I think we're in the midst of a cycle, the, the bull market coming to a top. I think we'll probably have another crash down, which I think is going to be interesting um, if this does play out because it'll be the first cycle where institutions that have adopted a significant amount of Bitcoin, like MicroStrategy, 
will feel a lot of pain if Bitcoin goes through a 80 plus percent correction. Well, yeah. But at the same time, how many of those institutions that have been basically getting approval for the past eight to 18 months are finally ready to buy and, and waiting or hoping for that cycle? And this is where all the game theory stuff comes in. Uh, so your point about price, adoption, things like this. Well, think about any company that has a huge deal that only the insiders know about. Right, so it, it the market doesn't know about it yet. You're not technically allowed to legally trade on this. You can't like front run and buy this stock because you know this huge deal where like Hertz is going to buy a hundred thousand Teslas or whatever. You're not supposed to do that, right? Right. That gets priced into the market once it hits uh, public consciousness, right? And then things happen. The thing that we don't have publicly, and some people might have it more than others, whatever. And if you really take a step back, you can kind of think about this strategically from a geopolitical, from a game theory perspective. We don't know how many of these Fortune 500 companies, hedge funds, investment funds, and even sovereign wealth funds, and even governments, we don't know how many of them have been talking about and observing this stuff for the past like two years and finally have a go-ahead, but they have it under this kind of like get your best price go-ahead. So maybe wait for a cycle to come or whatever. I just think that that stuff has not been priced in the market to like, like, even if it is, it's like a percent of a percent price in the market, right? Because what happens from the game theory perspective is it's just monkey see, monkey do. When right. Apple puts it on their balance sheet, every other Fortune 500 company on the planet basically has to because Apple now did it. And then I mean, when the first government Apple does that- it, That'll be a big domino. Exactly. And you know what I did think was that when the first government, I, you know, I thought that was going to be a domino that was going to push a lot of other dominoes over. So we saw El Salvador adopt it, obviously a very small kind of government here. But I kind of thought that was going to be the a domino to like another South American country being like, well, but it is though. like like Brazil or well, Brazil's already talking about it, right? They're, so they're, they're talking, talking about, it. about it. They take and forever to move. That's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's interesting um, because I, I mean, just this past week, Tim uh, Tim Cook, uh, who's yep. Apple Apple CEO, is like, yeah, I own Bitcoin. I mean, yep. <laughs> so that's something. Yep. Uh, I just think we're, I, you know, I think we're going to have these cycles for at least this one, probably another one, which I don't think it's a bad thing, but I do think it's an interesting dynamic where, you know, El Salvador got in. I, I can't remember what price they were buying at, but maybe they're buying around 30, 40,000. So even if it does go up and come back down to 40, 50, 60, they're still above where they, they're still not in the red, so to speak. Yep. Uh, so, so I know you, you don't ever have plans to sell any Bitcoin, mm -mm. but I have to ask you, because I know we talked a little bit about lending against Bitcoin last time, because mm -hmm. like, hey, you need some need some cash to live on if you're all in in Bitcoin. So you, you there's these lending platforms. Now, I, one of the reasons I'm asking you is because I'm super hesitant to do anything like this. Because one, I mean, if we use an example, let's say, you, let's say someone has 10 Bitcoin and they're like, oh, I do not want to sell these 10 Bitcoin but I need some cash. Mm -hmm. And maybe they are an investor and they're like, I want to take a lot of cash out and buy the dip. If let's say we have a dip in 2022, 2023, and they're like, all right, I want to buy this dip, but I don't want to sell, or they didn't sell during the peak. And so now they're, they want to, they want to use some leverage uh, through debt. Mm -hmm. My issue with it is this, the lending platforms that I've checked out, which I have not gone deep research, something like Coinbase or Celsius, you have to put that person in that example would have to put 10 Bitcoin in a third party wallet, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, like an escrow, I would imagine something like that. Maybe I don't know who controls the keys at that point. I imagine I don't know who does. They, so, they do. 
they do. So yes, then there's not I, any sovereign. I would be places. terrified. See, that's what I wouldn't yeah. do because yeah. my my biggest fear about short term high volatility to the downside <laughs> is the U.S. dollar starts imploding a little bit. People start seeking a shelter in Bitcoin, and so the government's got to step in and be like, "Look." Coinbase, we're shutting you down. Whatever, all these, are, you know, whatever they start regulating, and you have your coins with this other provider. Mm-hmm. That to me, that's a huge amount of risk to take a little bit of leverage out and buy, you know, use cash. Now, if it's like five percent of your Bitcoin holdings that you're holding with another provider to take a loan out against, so you can pay for something, I guess that's one thing. But doing that like all in kind of thing, so you could take a loan against your stack, makes me super nervous. Yeah, well, you don't have to do that much, though. You can do whatever amount makes sense. And and I'll give you my experience and advice. If you do do that, you have to make sure that you have some reserves to if you if there is a margin call. I took out a substantial loan. Not I didn't max out or anything, but I took out a substantial loan at sixty thousand. When we, right around when we talked. So at the peak. Okay. So before that, yeah. So okay, I was so. I was a thousand. No, actually, one day I actually hit a margin call. But I was like, I know I just, I senses the bottom. So I gave it a few days to respond to their like request. And I mean, I, I give Celsius credit. It's not like algorithmically done. They do it with humans, which is very, it's one of the reasons I like Celsius a lot more because some of these other platforms just do it immediately. So they would have immediately liquidated Taking some it. capital or whatever, right? So I don't yep. like that at all. I think Coinbase is going to be like that too, which Probably. is why I'm kind of hesitant on their new they product. They got a lot of customers, a lot. Oh, they're going to get tons of customers, right? But people need to understand it. And the free market will speak as more products come out. Uh, Celsius right now, from what I've seen, is kind of the gold standard. There are risks to this. But so, okay, this this is my advice. You have to make sure you have some Bitcoin and or capital stored somewhere else that's, so that you can reload if you need to. Also, can you explain a margin call for people? Yeah. Because I feel so, like they're going to get lost there. If I took out, let's just say round numbers, I took out a $50,000 loan at a 50% LTV, meaning half of the value that they're holding for me. So that means they hold 100,000 in Bitcoin or whatever asset. They give me $50,000. My interest rate's like 9%. That's kind will of- Will Celsius do that much, first of all? Will they do a 50%? Yeah. Okay, they will. They'll, I didn't know 50, they do that They'll much. do 33 and 20, 25 and 10 or something, I think. Okay, and there's so some that all the way up to 50%. So if you yes, put in 100,000, yes. they'll give you 50,000 if they hold your 100,000 in escrow. Yep. Yep. Nexo does up to like 60, I think, depending on the asset. Yeah. So if it, and again, the higher the percent, the more dips can get you close to margin, because what happens if you have a 50% as a loan starts, and then the price of the asset goes down to 80, now you have a higher percent of TV. And what they want you to do is they want you to add more Bitcoin or collateral or whatever to it is that. to rise that amount. I got down to the wire where I was going to have to add more uh, because I got it at 60,000. It basically went down to about um, half, but because in that loan, I did a 25%. I, I kind of sensed that, okay, we're at a peak here. So maybe I should give myself some wiggle room, right? Because if I'm at 50, I have, I have 50% wiggle room. I went down to 25, meaning they gave me like, let's say 25,000 against a hundred thousand. I had a little bit lower interest rate, but I also had wiggle room for the volatility in between. Hmm. Right. So again, like timing, if you, if you believe in the cycles, you want to kind of be careful that or whatever. Exactly. Uh, you know, you got to kind of keep these things in mind. It's kind of like um, trade. It's it's very much like trading with leverage, like with getting margin called. Uh, I mean, that's yep. exactly what it is. Uh, my question is, why can so is there's not platforms where it's like, look, you you put that hundred thousand dollars in escrow, they give you fifty grand, they say, what 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 were your interest payments? 
eight, well, it, was eight, your- it was interest only. It was 8.9%. And my interest payment uh, was like a couple, a couple or I mean, I have a couple loans. So like, so let's say one of the small loans was like literally $150 a month for like a $40,000 loan. Yeah. And so they need to be over collateralized by X percent in order to ensure your loan, so to speak. So Bitcoin yeah. drops more. You take a, let's just do the example. You had, you get a hundred thousand in X escrow. They give you $50,000 loan. Bitcoin drops 50%. Yep. They they need you to re-collateralize that loan, so to speak. Well, to a percent, right? Because a percent. What I mean, yeah. And there's fine print here. Some of them are different. Like what exactly. they wanted they're, me they're to different. do. Yeah. They wanted me to collateralize up to 50%, which was a starting rate. But if you like see how volatile Bitcoin is, you know that when you get a 50, 50% loan, that on any given day, you're like kind of up and down. And they're not asking you to collateralize every time. It's really when you hit like a ceiling and they want you to come all the way back. So I got into this position where I didn't know that. And it was a pretty substantial uh, amount of Bitcoin. They had a pretty substantial loan right. and it dipped all the way down. And now they wanted me to bring it back up. I basically had to double my Bitcoin stake just yep. to get back to the 50% because the asset had dropped by 50%. Exactly. So that, that was like a big, like, oh crap. And I'm glad I at least did the, the um, like 33% LTV or 25 or whatever it is. Because if I would have done 50, that, that would have been bad right exactly so i think this yeah. is a good learning for other people and as myself as well is why one of my hesitations had been from like doing any of this kind of third-party lending um mm-hmm. but so one of the guys i listen to a lot we we're talking about people we we like to listen to what one, one of the guys i listen to whenever you put something out is preston pish that p-y-s-h yep. i really like this guy he his background is traditional value investor like warren buffett kind of guy mm-hmm. and warren buffett is anti-Bitcoin. This guy is a student of Warren Buffett and now he is all Bitcoin. But he, to me, bridges kind of traditional and and non-traditional Bitcoin worlds. And I I was listening to a podcast he did recently and one of his big worries is if banks start basically being able to give loans and hold, basically be custodians to give loans, he's saying kind of like what we're talking about is they'll get, they also own other equities and things. So if what if the drop in one side of the portfolio is going to put this side of the portfolio yeah, at huge more risk, risk added so to the system. Yeah. The long story short is like the saying is not your keys, not your Bitcoin. I, I feel like a lot of that is true in these very high volatility, uncertain times. And yeah, so sure. like my perspective is if I did want to take some, chips off the table, you know, obviously I try to take it off at a cycle peak. If I felt like there's going to be a four-year cycle kind of thing, I would prefer to do that versus take loans out against it personally. So me personally would, I would not do that. So, so this is a good counterpoint to point you were selling the, I mean, again, you have to like really go deep and understand the asset, like, but you're selling the most valuable, strongest, best asset humanity has ever created for one that literally depreciates on a daily basis because they keep printing more of it, right? Yeah, the only reason would be if you believe in the four-year cycles. So if you believe we're going to peak out sometime, let's say end of this year, early next year, and we're going to have an 80% drawdown and you could sell some at a peak with 20% capital gains, basically, it's kind of like sending your kids off to school. You don't want to see them to go, but oh, this. long story short, you'd be able to buy more Bitcoin than you would have been able to, right? Right, but, but so, that... That doesn't account for hyper Bitcoinization 
which right, literally which is a risk. One one news piece could just skyrocket it. Uh, and I also believe that the cycles, if you compare some of the cycles and the models to other assets that have gone through similar volatility and monetizations and whatever in the past, like the cycles, even if they repeat, they do the the volatility usually gets a little bit uh, smaller and less less percentage swing. And I think we've even seen that in Bitcoin, right? So I don't believe, I mean, for us to have, you got to think about it, for us to have an eight, like an 80% drawdown, you would like every person that's ever, like every Fortune 500 CEO that has some money that's like been following what Sailor's doing, like there's going to, every single step of the way, there's willing buyers to buy this asset up, right? Yep. Like, and the thing about bubbles, a lot of people think this is a bubble. No, bubbles don't come and go. Bubbles go and then they die, right? Like they go up and then they die. Bitcoin has not been a bubble, never has, because it's just volatility. Right. It's volatility right. up. So I like this because I, I do like studying the price like I was talking about. Um, so one of the arguments against, because people think this four-year cycle, right, hyper-Bitcoinization, we're up only kind of, to me, and like you said, we only have two real full cycles to go off of, basically 2013 peak, 2017 peak. Mm -hmm. um, so 2021 slash 2022 would be the third real full peak if, if we continue these four-year cycles. To me, this summer kind of in my, solidified in my mind that we're going to have another downturn. If we are able to drop 50% in a mid bull market shakeout, which we've had, we had one in uh, 20, 20, before the 2013 peak. Um, if we could drop 50% in a bull market, I can't imagine, I, I feel like we could do at least 80% in, in a bear market where, I mean, people are just offloading. Uh, so anyways, I think it's, I think it's a real possibility that 2022, 2023 is ugly for Bitcoin as, as far as price. Um, yeah, maybe, but my, I guess my counterpoint would be the average person and the markets for something like Bitcoin, they, they don't stand a chance from a, from a percentage perspective compared to the institutions and the governments and these other big capital allocators that want to buy Bitcoin, you know, like the stock market is spread out, right? Even like Vanguard, you know, is like a second or first or second, I think after BlackRock of largest asset holder on the planet. Yep, but all yep. they represent are millions of individual shareholders and they have some institutions, but mostly individual shareholders. So something like the stock market is going to move very much in similar patterns that the public has moved. And so those things do repeat themselves pretty aggressively. Bitcoin's 12 years old and 12 years old, right? We're just so new to this stuff that... I mean, cycles happen and repeat, but at the same time, like we might be in this new hyper cycle that is like going to be massive and then not as much of a downturn or whatever. And then like, if we go out a hundred years, that, that becomes like the new standard, or whatever. I just think we're at any point close to just basically massive hyper Bitcoinization, even on a small scale where it's like institutional hyper Bitcoinization could, I mean, we're, we're talking about an asset that should theoretically or mathematically be worth probably between a quarter million and a million of Bitcoin today and five and 10 within three to five years, right? Like we're just so, it's so underpriced, I feel like, of what it actually is and the value it provides that it's just like, it's going to get there. But yeah, there's going to be cycles and like volatility and shit. And there's a lot of, there's still a lot of manipulation of the market, but I think it's getting harder to do that every day because bigger. more and more people are coming in with money that want to own this thing. Yeah. So last week I listened to Willie Wu and yep. Plan B who are two like analyst price yep. guys. And Willie Wu thinks we're gonna we're kind of entering what you explained. We're gonna go up, we'll have corrections, but it's really mostly just we're the the four-year swing cycle, which is you know, we've been talking about. He's 
that's largely he thinks it's it's that's a that's over. Plan B, he thinks we're still in four cycles. Um, one of the reasons I think that we're still we're still in the four cycle is because we talk about institutions and. You know, I listened to Michael Saylor enough as you have, where I don't think he's going to be selling no matter what price. Right. Like, I feel like he is a long term holder. I think there's other people like these, like any other institutions that are in right now. I mean, you know, you know what BlackRock has X amount of Bitcoin, it goes up to a certain price. They are taking cash. And I think there's a lot of big money in Bitcoin right now that will take profits. And, you know, because the, the idea is traditional finances, you sell your winners to rebalance with your losers, right? They, they ha- you yeah, have, yes, yes, you have no, because some have mandates. And, well, yeah, right. but some, some institutions have mandates for how much they have to allocate to certain assets. So, right. But the balancing of a portfolio, like rebalancing right, but, portfolios. Right. But like, think about bonds right now. Bonds are literally negative yielding, yet institutions own them because they have it in their like charter or their mandate that they have to own it, even though they don't want to own it. Right. And so a lot of uh, the hyper Bitcoinization from an institutional perspective is going to be these bondholders, which I believe is like 400 trillion or 300 trillion or some massive number. They're going to start saying, well, let us allocate like either all or some of our bond allocation to Bitcoin. And those people are not people, they're not trading. They're just buying assets and they're supposed to hold buckets of assets and they basically hold them and they take a management fee, right? Like they're definitely traders, but I actually think that there are long-term asset holders more so than there are traders by like a, a huge amount, but right? I, th- I, th- I think these long-term asset holders, even more like the ones that are really managing risk, what they what they would see is let's say they made a Bitcoin allocation. Maybe it was 5% of their portfolio um, and Bitcoin go- starts going to the moon. Now mm-hmm. that 5% their portfolio makes up 50% of their portfolio. And from a risk management standpoint, you have 50% of your portfolio and one asset. They're like, we can't do that. That's not risk management. So they sell that down to 5 10% of their portfolio. Uh, and basically, that, that's what I think a lot of the institution earlier, like maybe, I, I mean, I could be 100% wrong because people that are getting in right now are more, it's not the like, I feel like maybe it is the risk managers. I, you know, I, all kinds of people it's are getting a combination. Right now. Yeah, right. it's a combination. But I feel like, like Lynn Alden, I think she's brilliant. I listen to her mm-hmm. a lot, and I think uh, she manages funds kind of like like this, like very much like from a risk management standpoint. Mm-hmm. We obviously we're trying to make it, maximize returns, but if Bitcoin starts making up fifty percent of her portfolio, she's for sure selling it. Um to, to yeah, balance but how many people the- are willing to buy it then though too? Because like so many people are not in this asset class. Right. That's the thing. That's what volatility is. It's like it's still a nascent asset class. Gold doesn't move very aggressively like for that reason. Like it, it's been here for a very long time. And like you tend to the market tends to converge on like who are the people that own this asset for long term and who like who are the people that might buy the portfolio balance every so often and sometimes they have to do that like on a quarterly or six month or yearly basis not just like they can go in every day and just like sell shit like, it's, like yeah. there's a lot of inertia built into these things and i just think that because everybody eventually is going to need to have a strategy for bitcoin every fortune 500 company i mean eventually imagine every small business like whenever if it's Coinbase or whoever comes out with a small business Bitcoin savings checking account product, like again, that's like another wave of just literally over a trillion dollars of value probably finding its way into Bitcoin, right? I just think that every single day we get like one person, one step cl- and one step closer, one potential product, one potential uh, Fortune 500 company, right? One potential person like me that is basically like a mini Michael Saylor where I'm so 
in belief of this asset is the best thing I want to own that every dip I buy, right? So like we keep getting this like army of dip buyers, which I feel That's like help hold it and then wait to institutions like do that, you know? That is what sets the floor is what yeah. I think. But I think each time we have this floor of people setting it, we go into a phase and I think it's probably be like once we get a little over 100,000, it'll become people will enter in because of fear, fear of missing out, but also right. fear of like you're saying, like inflation was 6.2% in October, like well, inflation's running hot. That's if what they, keep, they told us. <laughs> right, if it, exactly. If it keeps running hot, hot, people are like, you know yep. what, we do need a, a hedge. So people start dumping into Bitcoin. Bitcoin's price starts going to the moon. People see it going to the moon, it's FOMOing in, both like they don't want to miss this asset, but also as a protection out of fear. Yep. And then I think the people that were in earlier that, like, okay, we got to rebalance the portfolios. Then we should, we see, see a, a sell-off. But I guess we'll see. Yep. I, I enjoy what like the price action, um, even though I haven't really been involved in it at all. Like, right. I have, actually, I've never sold anything. Um, mm -hmm. All I've done is buy. But this would be probably the first time. I, I If I feel we're getting into like a mania, I would probably t sell a little bit. Um, definitely my Ethereum, like, like we talked about. Uh, the downside is like if we went into hyper Bitcoinization this year, which I just don't think it's happening. But if that did, and you only take a few chips off the table, all right, you lost a few. <laughs> well, if you think about it this way though, if you're gonna sell a few, so like let's say you sell twenty thousand uh, dollars, and then you have like twenty thousand in cash, like well, one you have to do something with that. You got to put it somewhere, right? And everything uh, is not really a good place to put it. That isn't Bitcoin, but like there are places to put it. But let's say you have that twenty thousand, you want to take the chips off the table, and you decide, well, I'm just gonna do a ten thousand dollar loan against it, right? And I'm going to keep that in a separate account. So like if it does absolutely go to whatever, nothing, and they and I default on this loan or a margin call and I let them sell it off, well, then like I actually end up with 10,000 out of it. And if it does it on the flip side, I don't sell that asset that is like every year growing at 170 to 200% a year that's and true. potentially higher in the years coming, right? And so that's, and that's, I mean, even for people that don't really need the money and you want to just like feel like you've taken some out or whatever, you could do a $10,000 loan against 20,000, then put that 10,000 in, I don't know, a stock or something like where the hell else you would keep that or just keep it as cash or or keep it as like a stable coin or 10% on it or something. Like, I mean, I so, I just think selling is just, hey, this I, I don't is my question. Sell. Yep. Well, I mean, I, I like it. I like listening to people and learning about this. I'm by no means an expert. I but from the people I listen to, I feel like there's going to be a deflationary crash sometime in the nearest future. Mm -hmm. The stock market, you look at it, it's been going up, 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 up. Like the valuations are not based on earnings whatsoever. Like yep. cash flows, like it, things don't make any sense. And so, if you had some cash on the sidelines, I feel like that's a good hedge in some ways to be like, okay, if there is a crash, like cash is what you actually want to be in. <laughs> um, because I mean, one of the things is in March of 2020, I was already all in in Bitcoin, basically no cash, just enough to pay bills. Yep. Um, and Bitcoin went down to 3000 something. And I can tell you, I was not scared about losing Bitcoin. All I wanted to do was like, have any amount of cash that I could put into Bitcoin. I was like, there's, I was like, this is a lifetime. Yeah. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And mm -hmm. I was already all in on Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, so in, in that situation, I couldn't take a loan out against my Bitcoin really. It's it just crashed 3000. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I feel like I missed an opportunity there because if I had cash, I would have deployed 
all of it in, in at 3000 there. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I want to, because I do believe we're in a four-year cycle still. I, it's one of the reasons I want to sit in a little bit of cash because I feel like we're going to have some some black swan activity in the markets. It's well, possible that we don't, and we just keep printing money, and the stock market just keeps going up, 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 up until like people realize, like, is the stock market going up, or is like the dollar just really imploding? Well, it's a combination of all that, really. it, it, and it's also a store value thesis. People are literally using everything from used cars to meme stocks to whatever as a store value. Uh, because they are just continually printing money. The Fed is tapering, though. That's another thing. The Fed is tapering, so they're going to be buying less and less assets every month moving forward, and that's going to have implications for a lot of things. Well, um, yeah, that's that's a th- if they could raise rates, which you know, I'm we know not, that they can't. I mean, literally, <laughs> like the whole thing blows up. Like they're right. That's that's and for me, this is just more reason why you want to be in Bitcoin because they've gotten to a point where they've put themselves in a box that they can't actually get out of. Right, like nothing they do, they can win. And that's just what happens though. Like that's, 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 that's every fiat dollar. It's every government things that bloat, they just get out of control. And then what happens when they get out of control, you have collapse. And so we saw peak centralization, uh, which was 2020, 2021 to the point where governments think they can tell you what you should put in your body. You can move here. If you can't like literally the stuff that the Nazis did and labeling people as vax or unvax, literally everything is the result of peak centralization right? And masses and masses of humans. And now they can all communicate freely and you can't put, you can't put a lid on that. Right. So propaganda is less effective, which is why know. the propaganda has become even crazier. I don't right? know if we're at max yet. They could do central bank digital currencies, which will be like scary as all hell. I, well, that, that, that stuff does actually doesn't scare me that much. Cause again, I have Bitcoin, right? I think the well, other right. But it's like, like, as far as authoritarian and, and centralization, like where that, when they're telling you like, you can use the, this is your currency, but you can only use it to buy. You've you hit your limit on buying this amount of red meat. This is just an extreme situation, but right. it's like, whoa, what? Like, right? But but think about you've how, already you, you've already used your carbon emissions by buying X, oh, Y, no, and Z. Well, dude, they're already doing that. They're already doing that. But see, what 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 happens as a result of peak centralization is you have a return to decentralization. So this is the sovereign individual thesis playing out in real time, right? right? So that's why like this stuff doesn't bother me anymore. It actually makes me excited and happy, and that's also like fueling us to build the community and do these different things. Think about this: How many people do you know that have smoked pot their whole lives and? The government has like told them they can't do it and they just did it and they kind right. of laugh at it like, okay, yeah, sure, Uncle Sam, whatever you say or whatever. And then now over enough time and enough younger generation coming up, right, you have governments like trying to like openly embrace this thing, tax it, whatever, which is what they should have done because the war on drugs has actually killed more people and been more of a drain on the world economy than anything. It didn't do anything good whatsoever and drugs are actually uh, flourishing and as profitable as ever, right? See the, the same stuff. Anything the government does to me is actually going to uh, grow the alternative options, right? So I've been studying uh, agorism, libertarianism, things like that a lot lately. And what Sam Konkin talks about, and he wrote the New Libertarian Manifesto, which I believe is free online. You can find it. He says that the gray and black markets are actually bigger than the white market. So the white market is like the government approved tax, everything's tracked market. The gray markets are like every time you pay somebody 20 bucks to mow your lawn and you don't report it and that kid doesn't report it, whatever. You know, every time you buy like pot from some dude around the corner. And then the black market is obviously illegal things that you're buying, more risk associated, whatever, right? But the gray and black markets are bigger than any of the white markets. And what happens, just like with prohibition, what did prohibition in America do? 
it actually increased the desire for people to want to drink and increased the market of this thing, right? And then they finally realized, okay, well, we can't actually control this thing. So we might as well bring it into the system. And that's also how I think about Bitcoin. And I mean, again, Bitcoin and not cryptocurrencies, because cryptocurrencies are a completely different thing. And I think they will eventually be regulated out of existence or at least regulated into like a few that play by the rules or whatever. It's going to change everything. I just would not want to take that risk. So that's another uh, con against anything that isn't Bitcoin. So that's, that's how I'm thinking about that. I, I kind of lost my train of thought, but I think I answered that. Yeah, I mean, I think the inevitability of Bitcoin, I mean, obviously, that's why, I mean, I've gone all in and I'm like, if you far enough time horizon out, it's like, mm-hmm. it seems unstoppable, right? Yep. And it, it seems like the money of the people, so to speak, like this is what people want. They want control over their money. They don't want it not to be manipulated etc just play by the play by the rules right fair rule book everyone plays by it uh but i do think you know i i i wish it was up only from here on out like bitcoinization hyper bitcoinization i think i think people getting into bitcoin now it was healthy if they expected an 80 percent drawdown uh mm-hmm. because then like you won't be phased right if you and I, we I, we talked about this our first time, and it's like the way my girlfriend approaches it is it's like her savings account. Like mm-hmm. because after you, she's been saving it, you know, just a little bit here or there. Doesn't like it's not like trading, right? So yep. when there's fluctuations, it's like oh, what ha- what happened? But really, no one really keeps that close of an eye on their savings account. It's just it's that thing for retirement when you, when it happens, um, which is probably the best approach of most people to take to Bitcoin. Yes, it is. Uh, for sure. Not trying to maximize profits by trading right so i know a lot of people that do like like daily trading like high frequency trading on bitcoin um and then there's like the more yeah yeah exactly it's kind of to me it's like yeah chasing pennies after you know or picking up a penny from a steamroller whatever kind of thing uh some people trade the macro cycles, the four-year cycles, which will eventually end. So it's dangerous because of that yeah, reason. I, yeah, I think it's the illusion of control. Is like people they think they can like study information, do all these things. Like you're talking about something that the market doesn't even un- understand yet. And at any day, there could be one domino that could lead to all the dominoes or another huge domino, whatever. It's to me, all coins trading, all coins and trading kind of go in the same thing. It is as if you were to go to Vegas and you would play either roulette. Or blackjack, but at least in those scenarios, you know what the odds are if you just do a quick Google search. When it comes to these things, they are more privy to black swans than anything because it's just completely and utterly unknown and new and nascent and whatever. Right. Right. Like things like gold have been around for a very, very long time. You're not going to just like, I mean, again, this could happen because they could literally figure out how to mine gold out of the ocean floor. This is actually a big reason I sold because I, I saw some of the risks of gold, how overnight you could have a supply shock that could be just massive. Uh, and I and then I also looked into like, there is actually two to 3% inflation rate in gold. We keep mining more of it and it gets more effective. And yep. if you look at the deflationary nature of technology, it that's could working against gold and silver right. and anything like that, right? And over time, you will get more of this thing for less cost. And that that's not a good thing for the price. Whereas Bitcoin's the exact opposite. You actually right. uh, get less of it. So- yeah, um, everything that isn't Bitcoin is some, is a hardcore speculation. I mean, I like the way I think about it. I don't even think of as Bitcoin as speculation. I think it's probably the only place you want to be for as much of your financial wealth as you can stand. And the analogy I use is that of your home. Like 
In Austin, Texas, we have home boom. Things are going up like crazy, right? But let's say you live in your house. You like your house. You own your house. You have no mortgage. And all you pay is property taxes. If you have an 80% drawdown in the value of the real estate market, you're not going to care all that much because you don't really want to move or sell. You don't need to. And what ends up happening is you just have a lower tax bill, right? So if you think about Bitcoin, it's kind of like digital real estate or like your long-term like savings account. Like you, ha- People have to think about this thing as they want to own the math, the numbers, and then and you want to be able to say that's yours. And then what the market says the price is doesn't really matter because the reality is it doesn't matter if you're thinking within like anything under three to five years. If no. if anything, if the price is more three to five years or at least the same, even in this environment, if the price is the same, you're actually accruing value because everything is depleting around you, right? That's all you have to do. You want to own this thing. You want to own as many of the, as these math numerical strings, private keys, whatever, as you possibly can, because it's going to be highly sought after by 6 billion humans when there's only 21 million of them. And you don't want to sell them. You want to pass them down to your kids or whatever. And in the future, uh, if you want to ever get some value out of them to like use fiat wise, then like you take a loan out against them. And there will be a point like Sarah talks about where you'll have institutional adoption, where it's probably safer to keep your coins with some big, massively insured provider, right? Like, and again, this is going to take a long time to, to, to tease out. And there's a lot of risks here because early on, you know how banks are like, they'll rehypothecate it. They'll say, we have this. That's actually my biggest fear is like a lot of these banks are going to just not be able to even get it. Uh, when when they need to get it because people are taking it out of their wallets, it can basically be like a, a Bitcoin bank runs. That's the thing I'm afraid of, right? Especially yep. if we hit like hyper Bitcoinization and then they're like, oh crap, everyone's trying to take it out. Like that could be shit. Actually, the more I talk about that, the more I'm like, I need to spread some of my stuff out. I do spread mine out as much as possible. Like I don't like having anything in one area and I have some offs, you know, I have some where I own it. I have some that are like loan here or loan there. And then I use that loan money to like buy it somewhere else. Like, so I do, I kind of spread this out as much as possible, yeah. but there's definitely risk there. Uh, over time, like if you really think about this long term, which is hard for us to do as humans, over like five plus years, we're talking about potentially the difference between between being wealthy or at least protected while everything's collapsing around you, right? Some combination of that, at least protected or possibly even like wealthy if you just buy and hold. So, yep. Yep. And I think a lot of people are getting in, they'll see the price, especially as it starts to go up um, and be like, I missed the boat. Etc. And one of my favorite models, even if you're not trading it, is not so plan B, the guy we've kind of talked about a little bit. He he's most well known for his stock to flow model, which is basically mm-hmm. models the having cycle, basically, because every having supply gets cut in half. Uh, but my favorite model of his is not that it's a stock to flow cross asset model. What basically he models scarcity of different assets. So real estate has this scarcity, gold has this scarcity. And right now the scarcity of Bitcoin is that of gold basically. And so if you took that just, and basically since we know Bitcoin supply, really that model is predicting demand as that goes with scarcity and at least equal to gold is what you're saying. Exactly. Which is 10 so trillion equal dollars. To gold, which is $10 yeah. trillion. Dollars. Yep. So to me, if I had to put a fair market value on Bitcoin right now, it would be that of probably gold at $500,000. And most people would think that's astronomical, but based no, on minimum, my but, opinion that, would be a minimum. Yeah. So, yeah. Th- and that's where it is at this cycle. Then the, the following cycle, it, you know, it, it, it's up from half there. of bonds, maybe, or or a fifth of bonds, and then eventually, within ten to twenty years, you have it as like the base layer for humanity. 
Right. At some point, it overtakes, which is why his Twitter handle is 100 trillion, is overtakes um, real estate at $100 trillion. So then we're talking about, uh, you know, what is that? 10 plus billion, 10 plus million dollar, maybe $15 million. And that's still not, yeah. And that's still on everything. I mean, I think it's four to 500 trillion is global, like, value, economic value of everything. Right. Right. So, so, so there's yep. a lot of upside. So people that are getting, they're listening to this, so we're recording on November 12th, 2021 prices, 63,000, something like that seems like a lot, but like, we're just saying fair market value based on scarcity using that demand prediction, uh, model would be roughly $500,000, almost 10 X, uh, from here. So, yep. and that's, if you could have owned a seems crazy, the, but yeah. And if you could have owned a part of the internet early on when like you weren't really sure if Google was going to shake out, but maybe you thought it was like kind of cool and like social media was an upcoming thing, you know, whatever. And if you could have owned a little bit of the TCIP protocol so that you could have made some value based on the growth of that thing or whatever, um, you would, you know, be a potential trillionaire actually at this point. <laughs> and so like, that's what Bitcoin is. is it's the first time you're able to own the property that everybody's going to want, like literally probably forever. Yep. And then, you know, we can go super deep into that, but it's like you when you really see that, when you really realize that you can only have absolute scarcity invented, discovered one time and that you don't even actually want to ever find it again because then it basically means it can't exist, right? That that's what Bitcoin is. It's a miraculous spontaneous almost just like creation came out of like some people think it like from aliens because it's so amazing but it's, it's a that's just nature invention. dude Na it's nature and technology just figure shit out right it's yeah. darwinian but through silicon and, and humans and i also you mentioned robert breedlove who's one of my favorite people to listen to because he's kind of like the philosophical plus yep. history uh it, it, and he does a great job writing about it talking about it uh one of the things i actually it's been my my pinned tweet like almost this entire year uh he did an interview and he was talking about Bitcoin and he was doing his Robert Breedlove thing, which is awesome. Uh, one of the things he said in it was, oh man, I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to mess up the time scale, but within this decade, he, he says Bitcoin's going to be 10, $12 million a coin, but it's going to have the purchasing power of only $1 million, $1 million today because of the debasement of the currency. Um, I wonder what you what you think about that because this because to me this ties very closely into when we start talking about inflation and deflation, which is like to me it boggles my mind when I think about these things because yep. in the yep. deflation camp I'm listening to people like Jeff Booth and Kathy Wood who sees all this technological innovation that's going to drive down the price of everything, um, and then sorry someone just popped on my computer uh, inflation camp obviously those. Lynn Alden, Preston Pitch, the, some of the people we mentioned was like, we're debasing the currency, like we're going into inflation, hyperinflation, which will lead us into hyper-Bitcoinization likely. Uh, but these two kind of opposing forces that I see them both happening very clearly, like technological deflation, you get more for less with technology. Like that's what it does. And mm -hmm. prices of things should come down. Uh, but we live in this world where we're de debasing the currency basically we have to, to keep it running, uh, the economy running, these two forces colliding and what that means like in the economy and then kind of what that means for Bitcoin. I think Breedlove's more in the inflation camp. Um, but I, no one, and I've listened to any, I listen to a lot of podcasts this year. When I, my, my, this year, when I work out, I listen to podcasts on economics, mm -hmm. mostly at the intersection of Bitcoin and economics. 
And I, I try and listen to all the deflation ones I can, all the inflation ones, and someone to bridge this for me. No one has done a good job bridging this for me. The only thing I can see is both happening at the same time, meaning things, technological innovation does bring the prices down. There's huge deflation. There's huge inflation with debasement of currency. And what this would create is extremely divided, poor and rich. Um, because if you're in those people that are, have the assets that at least went up with inflation uh, because of the debasement and didn't get crushed by the deflationary forces, they're huge winners. Everyone else is going to get absolutely crushed with the deep with the debasement of the currency and deflation will make it possible to survive because the cost of things have decreased. I don't know. So my take, there's like four things that we could go into, but I didn't hear, I've never heard Bree Love say that. That's interesting, but it makes me think that he's right, but he might be wrong the way people consider it. I think he's right. If we were to take a million dollars of purchasing power at the same purchasing power we had, let's say in 1900. Prior to prior to uh, the printing press Yes, going because a million dollars today doesn't actually get you what a million dollars really should if we had sound money. So if we go back a dollar or the times when a Coca-Cola was five cents or a pair of shoes was there or whatever, right? I think that you could have a million dollars in purchasing power, but a million dollars in 1900, right? Like we know, like it, it's probably something like five to 10 million in purchasing power, right? Everything yeah, in this fiat world is inflated and distorted, right? So the, the other point is like, we have so much distortion in the market that like the price of homes and lumber and these different things. And like, we have these shipping issues that are creating prices and like probably 90%, like some people I follow like Zvetsky, he believes that like 90% of all dollars or value is just misallocated, right? So in a Bitcoin yeah. standard, again, to answer your question about imbalance, it's actually a better world because uh, even if you do have Uber elite that have all the Bitcoin, well, they can't coerce people. Uh, and, and well, again, they, I mean, there's going to be some things with like figuring out new governance models and things like that. But generally in a Bitcoin world, it doesn't matter if you have a bunch and someone else doesn't have anything because everybody's equal. You either produce or you don't. And if you produce for the market, you will be rewarded. And if you don't, you don't, whether you have a lot or not, right? Whereas in this world, you can get a lot and then you can set up systems and, and kind of crony capitalism, crony government, whatever, to then benefit yourself to keep getting more for nothing. And it's another further distortion. And that's where you get the inequalities. You have the elite that run how everyone else should live, but mostly benefits themselves. And it just keeps getting further and further unequal in everything though. Not just unequal in like who has more money, but unequal in how people are treated and who gets preference and who doesn't. And obviously inflation steals from the poor and benefits or whatever, especially those closest to the money printer. So I think when we get rid of that and we we return to a sound money standard, like inequality of value won't really mean as much because it'll be truly a free market or at least as close to free market as we can get. And that is one is, is the fairest, right? It's always the most fair is when you have a truly free market and nobody can kind of get in bed with governments and control policies and do all these different things or whatever. So I would say yes, but that million dollars in purchasing power I think we'll just, especially when things start getting allocated correctly and better and whatever, I think it'll just get you so much more that again, people can't really fathom it. Well, that goes along with the technological deflation is the million dollars of purchasing power. I mean, TVs are a good example because a $500 TV today and a $500 TV 10 years yeah, ago. You're already getting more. Look vastly yeah. different. Right. <laughs> so, uh, 
in those areas of technologic deflation, like your purchasing power, like that is what deflation is. Your purchasing power goes up for the same amount, um, yeah. contrary to inflation. But, but food and, and building and transportation, a lot of these other things have not uh, benefited from deflation as much, right? Because right. again, free market doesn't exist. You know, the air travel is actually not really progressed since like the 60s or 70s. I mean, right. even the uh, that one supersonic plane or whatever, uh, they stopped using. And I think that was an environmental issue, even though it was super fast and could have been super profitable. I mean, think about all the people on the planet that would gladly pay extra to get someplace in half the time or whatever. I mean, athletes, politicians, like whatever, like there's a huge market for that, but because this thing is captured by government, it's highly regulated. And there's this new ESG narrative around it. There's not innovation there. Right. So that's just like one example, same thing with food. I mean, you know, food, we've gone deep into this problems with supply chains. And a lot of people out here in Austin are working on decentralized food system. That's actually something Brian and I are working on. And we're going to try to bridge Bitcoin with that. And there's some other people like Texas on Twitter, I highly recommend people follow. He's just trying to get every cattle rancher in Texas onto a Bitcoin standard and then get them supplying directly to consumers and, and you know, basically removing themselves from the mass USDA, Monsanto, Bayer controlled huge thing. That is, again, it's another misallocation of capital, right? Yep. So that's, that's also why I don't fear what they're doing. Because the more they clamp down, the more these, again, like the Hydra, any true decentralized thing, the more this thing attacks, the stronger it gets, the more these things sprout up because it forces people to innovate and try things. Just like Prohibition forced people to get crafty about how to make the moonshine. And then they created all these crazy supply chains and they did all these things like the human, it's kind of like saying like, we're going to control all of humanity. Humanity itself as a single organism is this massive decentralized thing that no one could ever control. Right. And so that's just like a law of nature. And so every time we try to ignore that, we see what happens. The more mm -hmm. governments intervene, the bigger the crash, and the more often they come. And we're just getting to that point where they keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And eventually it's going to get away from them. People are going to get fed up. And I don't care how much power you think you have or how much money, when you have 300 million Americans that are willing to say, I'm not paying you shit. And if you come to my home, I'm going to shoot you. You're like, <laughs> it's not going to look like Australia. That's for right. sure. <laughs> right. You know, to, I guess kind of bring this full circle, like one of the reasons I was really interested in hearing about your Bitcoin projects is after I was fully sold uh, with Bitcoin all in early 2018, I was kind of at a place where, you know, you are, where it's like, what do I want to do now? And mm -hmm. I like, I wanted to do something with Bitcoin. Like, I was like, what can I like? And so the, I, I mean, I, so I thought I was like, and my conclusion was like, nothing like i felt like i could do nothing because i was like this is a perfect protocol like the only thing i could think about doing like is buying it <laughs> like, mining it and or buying it. it yeah buying yep. it yeah and 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 education i guess to help yep. those were like the the things i could the only things i could think of like i couldn't think of a project like i and i feel like other people probably feel the same way and then they're like those spin off some kind of altcoin to do something um yes. but i was yes, but i'm like dangerous. It seems like, you know, it, it does seem like, you know, utopia, but to me, I was so like captured by the idea of Bitcoin and I, personally I, that like sold into it that I was like, I don't feel like there's anything I can do to make this better. So it's like, right. I just got to accept it. It's done and I'll do what I can to buy as much as I can. Yep. Uh, yep. And so. honestly, do more of what you're good at because in a Bitcoin standard, that's what every human should do is they do what they're best at and the free market rewards what you're best at. Yeah. Right? No, that's Sailor. I, he's, he's always saying that. He's like, look, if you're a dentist, do dentistry. Maybe right. take out a loan. He, he's big on taking out loans and 
getting as yep. much leverage and collateral as possible to you know buy Bitcoin. Yep. Uh, the you know the hardest money that's going to exist. Everything else is secondary to that. Uh, but but yeah. So anything else? I we covered a lot. Yeah, um, I, I had that same thought as you, and I still kind of have that same thought. But I ca- I've been you know through like six months of just meandering and trying things, and like still like podcasting and reading and writing. I've come to what I need to do is do something physical with my hands. So it's kind of ironic because like Bitcoin's this thing you actually can't touch, digital, uh, other, other than maybe touch your miners, right? right? But it's doing things with my hands, building things, and building community. And then using Bitcoin to plug into that and to make it more resilient, robust, anti-fragile, whatever, uh, which also then spreads awareness of it. Again, if I want Bitcoin to succeed, which I do, then I have to figure out what are my skill sets. And my skill sets are more people, community building things, physical things, rather than like programming or coding or anything like that. Because like there are a lot of ideas I have, but then I have to like hire people to do it or whatever. And it's just not my skill set. And so I keep having resistance to that. And that's fine because there's, um, there's tons of really smart people doing that, right? I need to get and build a community and show people how to live and show people how to do these things, right? And then through that, kind of onboard them into Bitcoin in some way, even a little way or small way. And so for me, it's really building decentralized humans. It's like people, so, you know, do you have like 10 minutes? We could maybe go into this yeah. real quick or? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I've, I've gone through this evolution in the past like year and a half where like, okay, 2020, I got, I started paying attention to politics. I, I literally knew nothing about it. I couldn't even have told you what left first right was like a year ago. Right now, I have pretty good understanding of that. But even when I have an understanding of that, and even if I think I might lean a certain way, I think all politics is a joke and it's based on coercion. So I don't want to engage in it as much as possible. And then we saw vaccine passports. We saw this craziness. And then it's like, well, okay, this does kind of affect my family if we want to fly or whatever. Maybe there's some ways around it. And so like I've been like vocal about saying things about it. And now I'm to the point where every new crazy thing they do and say and I see, I actually take it as a positive signal that we're going in the right direction because this is what crumbling power looks like. Crumbling power, just like the mainstream media. Think about the mainstream media. They had a grip on the narrative, right? And so they were like the the monopoly, the only boy in town. And then the internet came around. And since the internet has eroded newspapers and mainstream media, whatever, uh, they look more clownish every day because they're just like scrambling to try to get your attention. They're scrambling to try to control the narrative for something they have literally no control over whatsoever. So right. we get further and further distortions of the truth. And their newest thing is let's spend money and create these fact-checking companies, which literally, if you look at who founds these things, <laughs> they're also people that own mainstream media companies, right? right? Or pharmaceutical, whatever, it's all connected. All of that massive amount, trillions of dollars of wealth, power, and control that is from the old guard, the old way of life, has been crumbling since humanity has been able to communicate freely through the internet at the speed of light. And now the next phase of that, that's going to really accelerate it, is being able to commerce and have money at the speed of light that nobody can mess with and nobody can control. They can try all they want, but they will fail. It's the same thing. Bitcoin, it's the idea of like turning Bitcoin off or shutting down or whatever is the same thing as turning the internet off. You basically have to nuke the entire planet and kill everybody. That's the only way either of those go away, right? So when I see them acting crazy and clownish, I am now legitimately like, this is like a couple days thing where I'm like legitimately happy. Cause you know, there's that thing where you like read a headline, you're like, oh my God, they're really trying this. You might complain a little bit and then whatever. And then like my partner and I, Allison, we've gotten to be to the point where I just tell her like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about like what this vaccine company said or what they said or what, the, what I'm like, literally I don't care. And now if I see it on Twitter, cause it pops up, I I'm taking it as actual inspiration and motivation and positivity. 
And this is not easy. Like it took me a, a way a while to get here, but we realized that like just complaining about it, feeling negative about it and whatever is actually just going to bring you more of negativity and bad feelings and fear and propaganda into your own life. You have to step outside of that. And then you have to take this thing in and decide like, is this going to be useful or not useful? Is this, is this energy I can use or not? And if you can't, then like cut off, cut it off completely. But I think the higher way is to eventually rise above it, look down on it, and then just pick and choose what's useful and not. And then it's all fuel. It's all data right? Whatever. It's all a sign. It's all signal that we're actually headed in the right direction, which is more decentralization, like decentralized food supply, decentralized uh, pr practitioners that got fired from big hospital, big hospital, sick care. Anyways, we need more small doctors that are willing to like go in and say, well, maybe we don't need to give you drugs or operate on you. Maybe we should just like try some health stuff first, right? Yeah. This is all positive. I, I'm actually like more bullish on humanity <laughs> than I've been in, like probably pre 2020. But since 2020, when I kind of had a dip in my my energy and like, holy shit, what's happening now? I'm actually very, very, very optimistic. So what do you think about people like you and I, and oh, probably most people I know value personal freedoms, very high, mm -hmm. maybe the highest of their values, like freedom to be able to think and yep, personal sovereignty and do yep. it. Yeah. Personal sovereignty. I do think it might be the, the minority, maybe it's half and half. I don't know, but what's your thought? Like people that, rather i don't want to say offshore their responsibility but like kind of like not take responsibility you know this what i mean a, yeah this is a but perfect, i think i think there's a lot of people that it's like they it's almost like a sense of entitlement like maybe the government owes us this or they should be doing this or you know uh i mean i think there's obviously some kind of balance that has to be struck like i think it's good that we have general like roads even though our road conditions here are terrible like we need roads and stoplights and you know think I, I like the externalities like we don't none of us exist in a bubble we all affect each other so there has to be some kind of gel so to speak uh because we don't live in an isolated bubble but i think that like maybe the most surprising thing to me over the last couple of years is the amount of at least like people that i've seen that are like okay with <laughs> not having personal freedoms. Yeah, this is a perfect uh, way to segue and close out because I wanted to recommend a book. I almost forgot that I've read in two days. It was recommended to me Wednesday night. I downloaded it on Audible. And then with by the next day at that time, about 7 p.m., I had read half of it and I'm going to probably finish it today. It is one of the lesser known Napoleon Hill books that was actually released, I think, 70 years later. Outwitting the Devil? Yes. Yeah. I've and I actually believe the more I think about it, talk about it, I'm right in the middle of it. I think it's probably one of the most important books ever written. And it's definitely the most important book to read. Now, 98% of humans are what the devil in the book calls drifters. And they basically let fear, propaganda, you know, other people and whatever influence them. And then that takes hold of their mind. And then they don't really have any sovereignty or control over their thoughts. And so that they end up becoming a byproduct of whatever big tech, big government, their neighbors, their family, whatever say. Right. And if you look at human biology and how we're tribal creatures and how we're literally biologically designed by mother nature to think exactly like the people around us, you get like a world that we see today. Like, it's not surprising when you understand it. Like it's hard to, to, to accept. And that's what I had to go through in 2020. Cause like, I always knew I thought differently, but then I saw like 
how different I thought when everybody around me was wearing masks and I wasn't or like whatever it was, right? I didn't see how prevalent it was until then, even though I knew because I've studied evolutionary psychology. I've like, I went down the ancestral path for so long. Like I understand everything about human past, but seeing it like that at that scale, like was like huge, I, I guess, wake up call, like realization, you know? And, but it also helps me just ha have compassion because most people aren't aware they, you know, they want to kind of, I'm dude, even like in communism, like most people felt helpless, even when they saw their friends being executed or whatever. And they thought I just comply. And I just like, kind of keep my head down. Like it'll be okay. And they didn't have the lessons of history. They didn't have history books that showed them how bad communism was. Cause they were literally the ones that were going to be written in history books. Right. Yep. What's crazy is that we have that. And you have people that are blatantly communist or fascist and they promote it. And it's like, you just decided to ignore a large swath of history. Just like, it's so it's, that's, what's really crazy to me. But again, you get into like crony beliefs, you get into understanding how the human mind works and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've always thought that like, there's always a 1% because the 1% always in the book, he calls it the 2% basically the 2% the think for themselves. And he, the devil basically says like the best way to fight me off. And it's just to think for yourself. Right. And, and most people don't do that. And that's why I've always thought about how those that are successful from a self-made perspective, I, myself, I've always thought for myself, I've always challenged most of the things I see around me. And I've always kind of like, like I question myself, like, why is it so easy for people to accept when it's so obviously wrong? Yeah. And that's been like the hardest struggle of my life is just kind of rec reconciling that with the way most people are, you know, and because then again, the goal is to evolve out of that, to then have compassion, right. Which is now why for me, the second phase of my life is like, I want to show the world how to live better, but I can't tell them how to live better. I have to like literally build something that is so much freaking better that they like see it and they have FOMO, right? Because yeah. that's how society moves. It moves in trends. It's like you have the early adopters, which are like the crazies, the revolutionaries, whatever. And then usually in their lifetime, they're not even remembered as that. Like most of the most successful people of all time, like people um, ostracize them while right, they were alive. They're crazy yeah. before it's uh, exactly right. Before and so, it's mainstream. Yep, and that's that's the world. And so, um, I'm, I'm optimistic, but yeah. yeah, we we just really got to lead by example. For any of you out there that feel like you are in the two percent or want to be, you just have to live. You got to talk the talk and walk the walk. You cannot be afraid of being canceled. You can't self censor. You have to just do yourself. Understand you, and don't be don't apologize for it. Also, you don't have to like force on people. You shouldn't, you shouldn't even try to force on people. You just do your thing yep. and the world will attack you. Like, but eventually you'll build a, a, like a silver skin and you'll be good. And then, and then you'll embrace it kind of like the way I've gone to, I now embrace craziness because I, it's a, it's a, it's the, the signal through the noise that we're going the right direction. And then I'm just happy and grateful. <laughs> yep. I agree. I think one of the most important things in life is to be yourself, but it's one of the hardest things to be because you have so much you have to scrape off. It's not like you have to go go look out and find. You got to like scrape off all the beliefs, the culture, what your uh, parents taught so, you. I know. So Nietzsche, Overman. I was literally writing thing about this today. So Emerson or Thoreau, the quote is, the greatest accomplishment is being yourself in a world constantly trying to make you something else or something like that. Yeah, like yeah. so good. And then Nietzsche's Overman is real quick. The camel, you bear the burdens of society. Right. And you do that for a long time because that's what you're told to do. And then you metamorphize into the lion. The lion says, a loud roar, he sheds all of the burdens of the camel. 
And then the lion represents courage and like, no, enough's enough. I'm not taking this on anymore. But then you become the child, which is the final metamorphosis. You become a child and you start from a childlike state of play and supreme ignorance to then build value and meaning in your life from the ground up. And from that, because you were the camel and then the lion, you can now become what he calls the overman or the superman. And you can live a higher ideal of humanity. What and is it's basically the hero's from? journey, but it's so fascinating. And it's like everything I try to remind myself of. What is this from? This is Nietzsche, thus spoke their Thrucha, and it's his idea of the overman. I have not read this, so... So the book is kind of tough because it's like written in, you know, 1800 yeah. speech or whatever. Yeah. Just read some of the articles and watch some of the videos about that philosophy because okay. I've studied Nietzsche for a while. He's very misunderstood because, you know, the God is dead thing or whatever. Right. But when you get into the overman idea, I've, it's, it's his crowning achievement. Like, it's just, it gives me goosebumps to even think about it. I know a but lot it's, of it's basically people, the hero's journey is what it is. I know a lot of people talk about Nietzsche. I, I just have not gone, I haven't He's explored so good. him. So. Yeah. Yep. I highly recommend that for anybody. Awesome. Well, I think this is a good place to end. Colin, thanks for the time. Uh, hopefully people found this useful. Uh, we'll see if the cycle theory stays. <laughs> yeah. Or, Every six months, we'll do one and we'll see what, what or, happens. Or if we go up forever. Hey, I'm happy if we go up forever so that, you know, whenever I'm talking about Bitcoin, I can no longer be the crazy one. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for that to be mainstream. So anyways, Colin, let's chat in six months and see uh, see who is right. Definitely. And everybody, <laughs> you can uh, get my newsletter over at thebetterhuman.co. And I'm going to post this on my feed so people can follow you. Where can they follow you? Cool. Um, just my newsletters at kevinstock.io. So kevinstock.io. That's, that's what I would do. Great. Yep. Awesome. Cool. All right, Colin, me, talk man. to you later. See you, man. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.